Hello and welcome to this first episode of this brand new podcast. I'm your host Jan Marlon, Inc. Pen and Pixels, looking at design in all its aspects and how it has changed over the years to what it is now. I'll be sharing my own thoughts on design of many different eras and taking for all of their aesthetics and fads, as well as interviewing industry professionals at what they think about design and their careers. For this first episode, I thought I might take a look at the 1960s and what makes this decade so special. We'll be starting in a minute, so I hope you enjoy. Welcome back after the introduction. This first episode titled Psychedelic 60s will better way to show off what this podcast is about than we're getting straight in. Today, I'm going to go through the 1960s in design, a very important decade in design that has its own unique style and aesthetic. I'll be talking about the particular fashion, interior design, and graph design of the period. At the end of the podcast, I'll be interviewing guests, be going through what they've done in their career and their particular specialty in design. So that'll be at the end of the podcast. But for now, let's move on to the first uh, topic, why I chose the 60s. And... Um, I think it's simply because they managed to create such an identifiable and influential design style that we still try and make today without having any advanced technology or computers. I mean, it's all hand-drawn, um, and it still managed to be very innovative, and not, not just for those times. So I think that's simply why. It's quite a nice contrast between now when you have the rise of technology and computerizations really running design. Um, just such an interesting era to look at because... He didn't have any of that, and they still managed to create quite a quite an influential design style. So that is why I chose it. But let's move on to the first topic. The first topic is the fashion of the 1960s. And now the fashion of the 1960s features a number of diverse trends. It was a decade that broke many traditions, mirroring the social movements during the time. Most of the biggest trends arose from small pockets of young people in the few urban centres that received large amounts of media publicity, and then began to heavily influence the styles that became popular. Examples include the miniskirt, culottes, go-go boots, and more experimental fashions left less often seen in the street, such as curved, badge-shaped PVC dresses and other PVC clothes. So it wasn't actually the designers or brands themselves that, that made these changes by introducing something new. It was already available products going mainstream, through more people using them and bringing attention to them. These weren't all high-fashion things, they're all things we find very common now, apart from maybe the PVC dresses that can be found in any clothing shop and are made by practically every brand. It was actually everyday people that drove these trends forward, and as, and as true as that is, you know, um, celebrities still had a hand in making these things popular, simply by the virtue of being celebrities. I mean, it's still a thing we see today, and it's still a thing that was prevalent back in the 1960s, so it still does happen, but... Um, yeah, it's still very much a thing that these people, through their trends of just wearing these things, made them popular. So I think that's still something to be accounted for. But anyway, let's move on to the first item, uh, the miniskirt. So a simple description of the miniskirt is a skirt that's above the knee. It's a short skirt. Um, again, if you watch Mad Men, they replicate it quite well, um, as well as many other things. And on the uh, original series of Star Trek, the female human's uniform includes a miniskirt. 
But the history behind it is that a manager of an unnamed shop in London's Oxford Street began experimenting in 1960 with Scott an inch above the knee of window mannequins and noted how positively his customers responded. Headlines were just above the knee in 1961 and gradually climbed upward over the next few years. By 1966, some designers had their hair with the upper thigh, which, you know, this is quite controversial at the time. Um, but yeah, towards the end of the 60s, an even shorter version called a micro skirt or micro mini emerged. So it's essentially dry forward to have a shorter skirt. And the popular acceptance of this peaked in the swingy London of the 1960s and has continued to be commonplace now. Before that time, uh, you know, short skirts only seen in sport and dance clothing, such as skirts worn by female tennis players, figure skaters, cheerleaders and dancers. So it originally was actually a sports skirt, similar ish to the skirt. Um, I think the colour which we're going to get into the moment is the um, precursor of Scort. Um, and as to the designers, several designers have been credited with the invention of the 1960s miniskirt, most significantly the London-based Mary Quant and the Parisian Andre Courage. Um, so the next thing is go-go boots, and again, the female yeoman uniform on the original series of Star Trek includes a miniskirt and go-go boots. But go-go boots are a low-heeled style of woman's fashion boot first introduced in the mid-1960s. The original go-go boots, as defined by Andre Courage in 1964, were white, low-heeled, and mid-calf and height, a specific style which is sometimes called the Courage boot. Since then, the term go-go boot has come to include the knee-high square-toed boots with block heels are very popular in the 1960s and 70s, as well as a number of variations including kitten-heeled versions and colours other than white. Um, in fact, most of the go-go boots I've seen have been black and made of leather, so I think that's certainly the change that we've seen. Um, and there were fashion boots were revived in the early 1960s by designers such as Beth Levine, that first they featured fashionable high heels such as the stiletto and kitten heels. Um, as to who invented these, a, p a person called Golo is recognised in the invention of the go-go boot in 1964, which was proudly worn by Barbara Streisand and photographed in the August 1965 issue of Vogue. Um, but the earliest go-go boots were mid-calf, white and flat-heeled in the Andre Courage design or the Courage boot. Um, and the simple minimalism of this was easily and widely reproduced for the mass market. So Courage seems to have a hold on actually being the first person to design these for the mass market, um, which is how they got popular. Um, so, and they actually founded the foundation for the development of the go-go boot, which increasingly came high up the leg and was made on alternative colours, you know, black and leather. Um, while remaining lower, it also became higher and chunkier. I've also seen that in, you know, most interpretations of the go-go boot. And the earliest courage boots were made of leather, such as kid skin or patent leather, but most of the subsequent versions and copies were made in PVC, vinyl and other plastics. Again, um, kid skin and patent leather. Um, again, I think these now are very popular in goth clothing um you know high like knee-high boots with very chunky heels you could call those a version of go-go boots maybe not exactly the original thing but certainly a version that survived until now and culottes is the next item we have um so uh, you know the mini skirt and go-go boots go together too as you can wear them an outfit the culotte is actually a form of split skirt and um, they're usually made of full or calf length and consist of a pair of loose flowing trousers which strongly resemble a skirt the shorter version is a skort um so it's like a predecessor of a skort a pair of shorts with a flapper flap again the font that turns them into a more modest skirt in the 1960s culottes became fashionable and they were known as hostess pajamas these trousers were little more simply cut so strongly as a more pants and they were often soon in brightly padded fabric with matching tops usually culottes were sold in a set with the in a set with the top and are made with fabrics like silk or rayon which is soft shiny and flowing so this is much more of a 1960s housewife vibe we have here where 
certainly something that you'd buy for yourself just to have that sense of being like, you know, a, I don't know really how to say this, made of the house. It's probably not correct, but that, that sort of sense of style. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in a way, they're the more modest version and socially acceptable version of a miniskirt. Um, one for the, you know, respectable lady who would be, you know, managing a house. Um, as seen back in the, in the 1960s. But, you know, um, so that is the cool look. And on to the PVC dresses and clothes. Uh, PVC, less popularly known as polymerizing vinyl chloride. Um, invented by Waldo Semen in 1926, he actually invented the plasticized vinyl that we know as PVC and prevented this first as a waterproof vinyl coated shower curtain and that's how the shower curtain is actually born. But it wasn't until the 1960s that vinyl made its mark on the fashion world, the decade of revolution and change that's reflected in fashion and used PVC to make a statement. British, British designer Mary Quanti is the first, was the first designer to use PVC in her work. Capitalising on the 1960s obsession with new materials, she clearly created a whole collection of shiny vinyl garments part of her wet collection. The collection launched in 1963 and featured a range of PVC-coated raincoats, skirt suits and hats inspired by Opart. The designs were to showcase in Quan's London boutique bazaar and worn by the likes of Cynthia Lennon, Patty Boyd and Audrey Hepburn. Andre Courage, again, also known for inventing the miniskirt. There's an infamous dispute between him and Quant over who the original innovator is. Um, so that's just a 1960 dispute over the origins of the miniskirt. And personally, I, I don't truly know who actually did invent it. Um, it is honestly up to them with his, rev with his revolutionary relevant ideas. Saying that celebrities also have out in this uh, general thing is you see Mary Grant did popularise the miniskirt. She also did a lot of work on the PVC dresses and her dispute with Andrew Carrara is essentially such that she may have popularised the miniskirt herself, but did she invent it? Um, and there's still a dispute to this today of who actually did. Um, and Jackie Kennedy, the first lady of the United States back in the 1960s, introduced the pillbox hat. And both these items are extremely popular. Um, um, for, false eyelashes were also worn by women throughout the 1960s. Psychedelic prints, neon colours and mismatched patterns were in style, which um, is a theme throughout this, as we saw in the culottes, brightly coloured items. Um, the brightly coloured fabrics that I use, which slightly remind me now of like hacky type items, you know, World War Two. they were trying to make uh, women's dresses out of the like potato sacks and so on. I think, yeah, the potato sacks and so on, because it's, it's the only fabric they had. Um, and it's sort of, might have gained inspiration from that. But you do see a mention of neon colours in general throughout 1960 design. But moving on to uh, Chucky Kennedy's pillbox hat. Now, a pillbox hat is a small hat, usually worn by women with a flat crown, straight, upright sides, and no brim. It is named after the small cylindrical details or hexagonal cases that pills used to be sold in. The modern woman's pillbox hat was invented by milliners in the 1930s and gained popularity due to its elegant simplicity. So it's not actually a 60s thing, it was invented in the 30s but blew up in the 60s because of Jackie Kennedy. And they were first made out of wool, velvet, organdy, mink, lynx or fox fur, and leopard skin, among many other materials. They were generally designed in solid colours or unaccessorised, but could include a veil. Jacqueline Kennedy, First Lady of the United States from 1961 to 1963, was well known for her signature pillbox hats, designed for her by Halston, and was wearing a pink one to match her outfit on the day of her husband's United States President John F. Kennedy's assassination in Dallas, Texas. Very nice example to use there. Um of when she first wore, well, not maybe not when she first wore this, but um, 
Um, now, as for specifically men's fashion, I'm going to tiptoe a bit around that. Um, in the early to mid-1960s, London modernists, known as mods, influenced male fashion in Britain. Um, so the designers took note of this and wanted producing clothing more suitable for young adults led to increase in interest in sales. I think to characterise what the 60s were about in terms of, you know, fashion business, it was seeing all of these trends supported by um, the item blowing up um, in popularity because people liked it or... Um, celebrities designing something and then releasing it, or simply, you know, designers designing specifically for celebrities because they knew people would try and look like them. So I think that celebrity craze hasn't gone away um, to this day. You know, I think the 1960s had the prominent example of that, but it also had side-by-side examples of regular people um, popularising items, whole movements. And that's quite interesting to see because now you you kind of see that still, but not to the same extent and not to the same um not yeah, not to the same extent and not to the same success really. Because I still think now you have a stronghold of brands and brand loyalty and designer brands spewing out whatever they can. But um uh, yeah, so to characterize in the late nineteen sixties the hippie movement also exerted a strong influence of women's clothing styles, including bell bottom jeans and tie-dye and batik fabrics, also known as paisley prints. Again, the hippie movement probably has the strongest hold on this, as as well as uh, tied with the psychedelic movement, which actually will influence graphic design later on. So, yeah, that is sort of the whole outline on what 1960s fashion looked like and who popularised it. So we're going to move on to the next section in a minute, uh, which I think is going to be interior design. Now, our next topic is interior design, and I personally think that interior design is the 60s most defining trait. You know, there are whole TV shows that gain their attention and popularity because they replicate such an authentic 60s feel on their sets. Um, it's featured on Mad Men, for example, it's a TV show I do bring up quite often simply because it has quite a high level of accuracy in regards to, you know, what the 60s were in terms of design and fashion. Um, uh, yeah, I'm sure there are others, but Mammon is one that I've watched and that I do know for certain has that high level of accuracy. But um, the retro-modern style is associated with the decade of the 60s. It's sort of the style of the 60s. We won't talk about what interior design looked like, we're talking about retro-modern. Um, it features a new material, polypropene, as a furniture material. Polypropylene, um, I, I, I got that wrong in the first one, uh, which was manufactured in colours that came out the paint ship came in its own. So essentially, for the first time they had a material where they could match it to the paint they actually wanted, because I'm pretty sure with most materials, there's a uh, slight variation between the colour you see on print, for example, and the colour you actually see on the piece of furniture. Uh, foam moulding, mostly used as upholstery cushions, became a basic structure unit for furniture in the early 1960s, like, you know, the foam futons. Large areas such as sofas, beds, carpets, drapes, and wall covers were covered in vibrant colours and patterns. Employing psychedelic, psychedelic intensity, the Carlton styles were influenced by India, Spain, and the Mediterranean. Which is interesting because a lot of these colours, uh, this is talking about US design specifically, but um, a lot of these colours just went uh, took a lot from other cultures. Um, they saw, you know, the bright, vibrant colours of India, Spain, and the rest of the Mediterranean, and thought, that'd be quite nice to replicate. And I think, yeah, it's quite nice that it's not drab. Um, it's this bright, vivid colour set. 
which is really nice to see. Um, and the cards they used were green, such as pea green and drab, uh, okay, uh, uh, yellow, pink, and orange, such as peach and saffron. Hues were popular for wallpaper, carpets, curtains, sofas, chair seats, and cushions, often with patterns of bright flowers. English decorator David Hicks was an important influence on interiors in the 1960s, inspired by bright colours associated with India. Hicks popularised use of psychedelic patterns and acid-edged acid acid colours, a time when there was interest in the hippie movement and flower power. The same era, Dorothy Draper, one of Manhattan's top interior decorators of the 1960s, used dull white and shiny black as one of her favourite combinations. I will get to Dorothy Draper in a minute, but David Hicks seems to be going down the hippie flower power route of these bright, vibrant colours, which, you know, you, see, you saw that with uh, the whole hippie movement influencing fashion as well, and it, it does bleed over into design, um, interior design. So, moving on to Dorothy Draper. Dorothy Draper was an American interior decorator, stylistically very anti-minimalist. She would use bright, exuberant colours and large prints that would expose, um, encompass her walls. She incorporated black and white tiles, Rococo scroll work and Baroque plasterwork, design elements now considered definitive of the Hollywood Regency style of interior decoration. So, Essentially, Dorothy Draper created the 60s look. As much as retro-modern was quite influential, but Draperism especially inspired the whole very anti-minimalist, out-there-bold style, which is quite a 60s, uh, quite a 60s tone, you know. Um, and so Dorothy Draper did a great deal of hotel design, including the Sherry Neefland in New York, the Drake in Chicago, the Fairmount, uh, the Fairmont in San Francisco. At the height of the Depression, she spent $10 million designing the Palacio Quintadina in Petropolis, Rio de Janeiro. Also during the Depression, she wrote Arthur Dorothy Draper column, which featured in 70 newspapers and advised people to take that red paint, to take that red and paint your front door with it. And many people followed her advice. They also bought more than a million yards of her signature cabbage rose fabric. So even, you know, during the Depression, which I think it's a bit lavish of her to spend 10 million redecorating a, pal um, a palace in Rio de Janeiro when people in America were starving. But that's beside the point, really, I think. She was, she was had that, you know, luxurious, exuberant style. Um, and in 1912, it's a she was married to George Draper, the personal doctor to US President Franklin D. Roosevelt, after he was diagnosed with polio. Eleanor Roosevelt and Dorothy were cousins and good friends growing up, so the relationship between two families grew. Together, the Drapers had three children before divorcing in 1930. Um, so, I mean, that's interesting. She was actually best friends of Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, a little tidbit for those. Um, but Draper created a new style known as modern Baroque, adding a modern flair to a classical style. She used dramatic interior colour schemes and trademark cabbage rose chintz. She promoted shiny black ceilings, acid green woodwork and cherry wood floors, believing that lovely clear colours have a vital effect on her mental happiness, which I think is very true, actually. Um, you know, going going for a more subdued look, you know, may, 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 may make you seem more modest, but I do, I feel there's some wisdom in that, that if you decorate your house brightly with colours, you do actually want to live there, and it seems a bit more like you. And, um, you know, I think personally, you know, I think personally I'd much rather want to live in the house as brightly coloured as I want it to be then, something that's more toned back, um, because you, I just think you, that signifies you haven't had time to decorate it yet, but... Um, she also chose very dramatic and contrasting colour schemes such as black with wine, added in some bits of colour. She combined different colours, fabrics and patterns together, combining stripes of floral patterns. She used, often used large, oversized details in numerous mirrors. All of the colours patterns and all of the colours and patterns contributed to a dramatic design now referred to as a draper touch. The opposite of minimalism, her designs are incorporated in homes, hotels, restaurants, theatres and department stores. So that essentially is draperism.
which I think fits in quite nicely retro modern. It's very, as I said, very anti-minimalist, very out there and bold. And I don't know if you, again, the best of his references I have is Mad Men. Um, Drape, Donald Draper's house in later on, um, I'm not going to give any spoilers with the show, but later on the show when he gets his new apartment, it is kind of like that. I mean, you see it's quite... I mean, you see it's quite out there, has a lot of bold colours, a lot of stylistic furniture, has a little... It's not exactly a conversation pit, I will give it that, but it does have that little lowered area where it's mimicking a conversation pit, but not exactly a whole one. Um, and for those that don't know, I should explain this, a conversation pit is essentially like a little lowered area, usually in the centre of a room where you'd have... Um, it piled up with chair... Well, not necessarily, no, sorry, not chairs. It'd be piled up with sofas and futons. as a little cushioned area, people would... And, um, little ottomans, a little, like, round cushions. People would come and sit and discuss, um, which is quite a nice addition to a living room. I think that's certainly a thing we could bring back in in more, you know, in large, you know, LA apartments and mansions. Um, you do still see that. Which is quite a nice, it's quite a cosy addition. Um, but yeah, at the start of the 60s is, is quite like that. Um, is quite like that. And a lot of, uh, talking about more about Draperism, but a lot of the hotels have been given the Draper touch. I think there was a very, um, which hotel was it? It was the, um, but we talk about uh, Draperism and giving things the Draper touch. She so uh, did redesign a lot of hotels. Um, but later on, I think they've been redesigned again and they've lost that sense of style. But you can still see in some hotels that 60s feel. But she's a very American example of what the 60s felt like. But I think uh, certainly many people would have just followed on from her example and made, um, essentially mimicked her in that way. Her in that way. Um, and it says in here as well. I think also, uh, this may not exactly be linked to Drupalism, but the cinemas. Uh, very classic, you know, very classic 60s cinemas are quite nice. Um, again, they have that style of being quite retro. But before arcades are around, so they can't they can't play in the, you know, the computerised retro aesthetics of arcade games. They just more rely on a nice home feel, which I think is quite nice. Um, but all in all, I genuinely feel that 60s interior design is one of the nicest of all eras. It's so bold. I mean, it's so, you know, it, it feels very homely. I feel that no other area does it. It feels homely. It feels both like a statement. And I would I would definitely want to live in, you know, any traditionally 60s house because it feels livable. Um, as opposed to many other exuberant designs of other decades, it actually feels like it's meant for living in. And I think that's quite a nice change from, you know, even today when you have some ridiculous, ridiculous architecture designs that are clearly just for fashion rather than for actually living in and i think this is one of the areas where you have to make something where people would want to live in it rather than um an art statement so that is it for interior design so the next section is going to be graphic design um and we move on to that in a bit So now on to my personal favourite topic, graphic design. I just think there's so much you can do with graphic design. There, you know, there's en literally endless possibilities with it. And I think it's really interesting to look at the 60s as an era because they did some amazing, really visually impressive designs look fresh and stunning. And you could even use them today and some I think are potentially still in use. Without the use of any computers or, you know, digitalization that we have now. I just think that's amazing. They simply have the tools available to them. 
Uh, essentially, I mean, you go from Paul Rand in 1960 modifying the IBM logo, who designed in 56, to the LSD-inspired psychedelia adorning record sleeves and concert posters. There is a lot of range and depth here, and a lot of very clean styles, and a lot of styles that are messy, but vibrant, um, usually found in the music industry. But on to uh, the first example, the IBM logo. Uh, now, to those who haven't seen the IBM logo, it's very simple. It's literally the letters I, B and M, all in blue or black. I think the original one was in black, but the modern one in use now is blue. With around five to six uh, white lines going through them, creating this quite chopped up design with lots of negative space. It's hard to actually tell how many white lines go through this because... Um, because of all the negative space. To me, I'm going to say it's about five or six. It could be more, around eight, but I think that's a bit excessive. But um, as you know, IBM Logo is one of its most uh, valuable corporate assets. It went to Alan Fletcher and Eric Nitsch, gaining, who gained prominence for their branding campaigns, whereas Keiichi Tanami excelled in animation, lithograph, illustration, and editorial design. The styles of the various graphic designers of the 60s show a distinct contrast, some holding to the staid and prim style of the 1950s, while others delved into experimentation with and without mind-altering drugs. Um, so... Yeah, and we, let's look at Alan Fletcher, um, who was a British graphic designer in his obituary described by the Daily Telegraph as the most highly regarded graphic designer of his generation and probably one of the most prolific. He founded a design firm called Fletcher Forbes Gill with Colin Forbes and Bob Gill in 1962. An early product was a 1963 book, Graphic Design, a visual comparison in John Lewis's studio paperback series. Clients included Pirelli, Cunard, Penguin Books and Olivetti. Gill left the partnership in 1965 and was replaced by Theo Crosby, so the firm became Crosby Fletcher Forbes. Two new partners joined and the partnership evolved into Pentagram in 1972. Um, and they had clients such as Lloyds of London and Daimler Benz, and that's sort of a view of the sometimes interesting studio politics that can occur in design again i'm referencing, referencing madman again but this does happen on the show and it might even be inspired by this the you know various when you have the design studio just the various various people's names rather than coming up with a thing but eventually they did call it pentagram this is admittedly in 72 but they came up with a name that isn't just their own names and much of his work is still in use, a logo for writers made up of 84 dots, which he created in 1965. Admittedly, this was retired in 1992, but his 1989 V&A logo for Victoria and Albert Museum and his IOD logo for Institute of the Directors remains in use. Um, in 1962, he co-founded the British Design and Art Director, The Direction, along with David Bailey, Terence Donovan, which was later renamed Designers and Art Directors Association, D, um, A and D. So he still has a couple of designs still in use, and I think it's quite interesting that he still managed to have the influence, even when he did these designs, um, you know, nearly 60 years ago. So now we're going to move on to Alan Fletcher's works, and I do think he is one of the, like, his works tend to incorporate a lot of typography, and simply a lot of shapes as well. I mean, when you get down to it, typography is just shapes. And to be able to sort of um, comb it down to just the shapes of an individual letters and manipulating that is really quite amazing and quite... It's also quite visually simple, but works well, especially when you're thinking of just a typographic logo that needs... You need to identify the brand and you need to make it 
visually appealing. And I think that's the simplicity, the simplicity, simplicity is really the way to do that. And so we're going to look at four logos he designed, the V&A logo, Reuters, um, the logo for Forbes and the logo for Designers and Art Directions Association or DNAD. So the uh, VA logo is very simple. It's a V ampersand and an A. The A in question here um, is a bit of a quirk in that it's only the right side, the, the right like slant of the A. The rest of the A is taken up by the ampersand. Um, so that's quite interesting, you know, combining those two letters together is quite actually visually clean. And the V, one side of the V, the one closest to the ampersand, and the ampersand is in the middle, um, is quite thin, so it's combining all three of the letters together, and it's it's very clean. It's a very clean, quite minimalist design, just that one element of the ampersand in there. And it also looks quite stylish. I mean, yeah, it has that artsy feel of you've, you've added something while still making it very simple. Um, and you still have the you know, space within the A there, with the, the tail of the ampersand still makes the um, bottom line. So it's quite a nice, clean, visually Maybe not visually striking, but you could ident identify it and it's, you know, it has that feel of this is an art gallery one and it's quite easy to reproduce. Uh, and then his, Roy um, then his Reuters logo, which I think is the most well known, is the 84 dot Reuters logo, which essentially um, the word Reuters is all made out of dots. And I think that's quite good because Reuters at the time was an emerging financial technology company and they were all quite reliant on the whole punch system of computers and mirroring that is quite good. Um, here it appears in grey. Um, I feel it might have been reproduced in blue, although I don't think Reuters colours are blue, but um, no, I think, yeah, I think actually this was reproduced in blue, which is a very nice, quite computer, quite um, techy logo in that sense for even emerging, for an emerging tech company in the 60s and it was quite nice. And they kept this until 92, um, 1992 uh, at that point. They, I think they ditched it for the current logo, which has still incorporates that sort of dotty feel, but it's quite nice. And it's also, again, very simple. Um, maybe it's not much to look at, but it, it gets the point across. And uh, his D and AD logo, uh, you know, simply the word the, the letters D, ampersand, D and A. The A in this case is slanted along the floor in a, a, a slight 3D perspective. The one of the D's is capitalized and is slanted up against the A. In the middle is the ampersand slanted slightly along the left as sort of a plane. Um, you know, the planes all over the place. And then the last D, which is lowercase, is sort of resting against uh, the top, uh, is resting by the top of the A against the rest of the ampersand. So this is again very visually simple. It's literally just a letter, but he's played around with the um composition of this and the planes. As in, it's, it's got a free, it's not a freely plane, definitely, but it's quite interesting. It's not exactly consistent, but it looks quite interesting. And again, for a association of designers, having something like this showcases something a bit more unique. It is, yeah, it's, it's um, appropriate for the the commission essentially, and it's quite nice. I mean, yeah, it's clean, very not very complicated, but none of the designs are very complicated, and they get their point across. So simply. There you go. Um, I this one I think still is in effect uh, today, at least it hasn't been taken down yet. Um, and the Forbes logo is the last one we're gonna look at. This is a very simple. We have a black block and the two F letters inside of it, um, slightly overlapping in white. Very simple. It sort of looks like a post stamp. Um, which at that time I don't know exactly what Forbes was doing at that time. Uh, now it's sort of you know this. Um, 
it, you know, basically counts people's wealth. Um, it might have been doing that, or it might have been like one, like similar to the, not exactly similar to the Economist, but like a financial advise, advisory thing. Um, but that, it's again, really visually clean and neat. There is, you know, it's not complicated at all. There's simply two Fs, done. Uh, really neat. And again, most, all these logos are really neat, really simple, really on point. There is nothing too complex about them. And you can easily reproduce this now um, digitally, but then, especially then I think without the hand-drawn um, stuff and now digitally, it makes sense to use shapes because you'd have, you know, especially all these using rulers and um, set squares and so on, probably be able to grit up this. So they are really clean and really nice. All of these are in black and white, by the way. They do not have much colour on them, which I think his style was mainly black and white to keep it, you know, quite uh, clean. I, I'm saying the word clean a lot because this is really the only way I can describe them. But yeah, I think those are all very impressive and, you know, successful designs. Um, some of which are all um, still in use today, some of which aren't, but they're all, they're all quite good in my opinion. And he's not necessarily my favourite designer of these three, but he's certainly the one that had that has maybe the most successful commissions um and has that rivalry of Herbert Barlin because Herbert Barlin did very similar things with typography maybe it was a bit more adventurous but we'll get into that when we got on to, when we get onto him but yeah that's just an overview of um Alan Fletcher's works and now on to Eric Nietzsche um Eric Nietzsche or Nietzsche was a pioneer in the design of books and in reports and other printed material that relied on meticulous attention to the details of page composition, the elegance of simple type presentation, and the juxtaposition of elements in a page. His hallmarks were impeccably clear design, brilliant colours, smart typography, and adherence to particular geometric foundations. In 1955, Nietzsche began working with engineering company General Dynamics as, a, as art director, which he held until 1960. He designed a breakthrough series of posters in addition to designing their corporate image annual reports and advertising for the development of information design systems. Nietzsche designed a 420-page book to the, on the company's history entitled Dynamic America, prompting Desire to begin designing his own books. Nietzsche was a consultant to the Museum of Modern Arts Department of Design and to the Standard Oil of New Jersey in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, so, so far, he seems to be more interested in designing books rather than the actual logos. So Alan Fletcher was very much a logo designer, but he seems to be um, the more book design which is, I think, much more intense than logo design. You have a lot more things to think about, but it's using the same visual skills. Um, in the early 1960s, Nietzsche moved to Geneva, where he established NESA, Eric Nietzsche International, and designed two encyclopedias, the New Illustrated Library of Science and Invention of 12 books in the set and the History of Music with 12 books in the set. Um, any folded after Nietzsche's former partner established a similar company designing similar books, leaving him in debt. And from 1965 to 1980, he lived in Paris where he produced over 2,000 colour illustrations for the 45-volume encyclopaedia, which covered 100 years of science and technology. Okay, so now we're going to look at Eric Nietzsche, um, some of Eric Nietzsche's work. And it's very different from Alan Fletcher's work. He mainly dealt with logos and typography. Eric Nietzsche deals entirely with books, and he did actually design the entirety of the book. Um, but we're not going to look at that in that form because it's too much content for me to cover. Instead, we're going to look at the um, book covers, the most striking part of the design. And so the one that has to be the most eye-catching. And this is all, these are all covers for the General Dynamics book he did, um, a book about the history of the company. Um, and the company's an um, energy company, just for reference. 
Um, several, you know, it's quite interesting. These are all the several different versions of the front cover and potentially back cover as well. But um, the first one is it's got a grey, sorry, a grey background, um, quite a dark grey background, with an image of the Earth, uh, more specifically a globe, a flattened-out globe, as if you're looking at it down from the North Pole. Um, so this is simply got you know quite a lot of flat blues and greens. There's not actually an accurate image of the globe. And laid over this is a um, la um, sorry light bulb symbol with the General Dynamics logo, and the General Dynamics logo is a um, it's like an atomic symbol with um, the with a lot of red and blue in it. I think the bands are red and blue. Um, yes, with the um, atomic uh, symbol in red and blue bands. Um, but yeah, no, and also it's got the general dynamics, um, well, it's got the words general dynamics at the bottom of the cover. In quite a dark, like, black as well, it's not actually that clear to see. Um, this one's quite a nice striking one, it uses a lot of, um, sort of basic shapes to create the um, images it does. And it's quite good, I mean, yeah, it's essentially saying that general dynamics as a power company uses what I'm guessing is alluded to be atomic power to power the world. Quite a fitting image, really, um, for a leading company. It does actually get as quite a nice um, cover. And I usually don't criticise the work, but I will say it's quite hard to see the words general dynamics, general dynamics on this one, because it's simply that it's it's black on dark grey, and they do they do pop out, but not as um, well as they should do. But anyway, it's quite a nice um, piece of symbolism. And the second one is quite. Um, it's again for the same book, but this time it has this sort of sea. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a faint sea, and the nights with a night sky full of constellations, and in the middle is this sort of small white orb with a um, with the general dynamic symbol in it. This is slightly different. It's a um, atomic symbol as well, the symbol of an atom. It doesn't say it doesn't um, again in. Uh, specifically of an atom nucleus, with it's just got a uh, core of red bands and around it blue bands sort of spiraling all around it. And at the bottom, the words general dynamics in gold. Um, this is quite a nice one. Again, I, the symbolism I guess here is general dynamics is sort of harnessing the power of the atom, and it's more scientific. It's more in depth. Um, but this one seems like a proper piece of illustration. It's quite nice. It's quite um. Yeah, again, the symbolism is really on point with these. Um, basically saying that the general dynamics as a whole, you know, harnessing the power of the atom, powering the world, really vivid imagery that goes well together. And I do quite like that. Um, and the third design, we're going to look... Actually, no, I'll, I'll, I'll speak more about this design. So it's quite nice with that. And also the sea. Um, there's a lot of sort of... Um, maybe not idea of moon, but idea of space in this one. The space of the sea, you've got the space of the nucleus, um, and then you've got the space of the sky, it's quite open. Um, it's quite, uh, I mean, it's not the most direct choice, but it is good. Um, and then moving on to the third one, we have um, a very similar one. Uh, this one is on a, oh, sorry, the, the second one was also on a quite dark grey background. But this one is on like a beige background. So the third one's on a beige background. In the middle we have um, a uh, rectangle, but with it's sort of the sides are curved in, create like a 1960s TV screen um, with lots of uh, dark, uh, filled in with black and with lots of multicolored dots on it. Again, it's quite you know 
a nice TV screen thing, and the dots run uh, down through it, um, so they're, they're going off of it, and then you have all the writing around it, as uh, this probably looks like the blurb, and then there was general dynamics at the bottom, in blue this time, so you could actually see them. Um, this one's really interesting, it's more technological, it's more about the, you know, computer screen and the dots running down it, so creating like a column, all have symbols in them, symbolising various different things to do with technology as well. Um, then the blurb um, coming off it, which is all, it's all quite a neat piece of design, and this one's quite different, again, very simple, just shapes and colours, but it makes that sense of technology and a TV screen, which is quite nice. Um, it is definitely quite nice. It's quite vivid as well. I mean, yeah, these are all linked together with, you know, harnessing the atom, powering the world, and the technology and TV screen. And so it reminds me, the third one specifically with the TV screen reminds me of something out of Star Trek. Um, but probably, that's probably just me, so not entirely, but they're all quite nice. So that is a short overview of his work. Now on to Herb Lubarlin. He was an American graphic designer. He collaborated with Ralph Ginsberg on three of his magazines, Eros, Facts and Avant-Garde, and was responsible for the creative visual beauty of those publications. If you remember, um, it was Keiji Tanami whose No, no More War poster, which actually um, was featured in a contest organised by Avant-Garde magazine. Um, and Herbal also designed a typeface, ITC Avant-Garde, for the last of these, his font could be described as a reproduction of Art Deco as in scene and as scene logos created in the 1990s and 2000s. He also uh, created the Pistilli Roman typeface in 1964, um, and it also, this later comprised the trademarks of Lincoln Center, the Metropolitan Opera, and the New York Philharmonic from 1978 to 85. In 1961, he designed his trademark for the Saturday Evening Post to the use for several years. His work redesigning the magazine was portrayed in a cover painting by Norman Rockwell. Lou Barlin left Sunderland to start his own firm, Herb Lou Barlin Inc. in 1964. And he then created a trademark for the World Train Centre at its opening in 1973. And he designed versions of Reader's Digest, New Leader, and the entire series of Eros magazine, the last of which was subject of a US Supreme Court case and obscenity in 1963. But I think most importantly, his private studio gave him the freedom to take on a number of wide-ranging projects, from poster and magazine design to packaging and identity solutions. It was he that became best known, particularly for his work with his magazines. So he seems to be much more of a magazine person, although I do think his works, particularly with typeface and logo, are just masterful and brilliant. You do you will not find anything similar to them in any other designer. Um, it, it, they are just brilliant. And now we're going to do an overview of Herb Lubalin's work. And I've picked out three of his logos to talk about here, and uh, just an overview, he is, again, a very typographic worker, much like Alan Foster, he did all logos for um, a variety of magazines, you know, ma like magazine titles um, for his uh, free publications, um, and they are, and, uh, the, the, incidentally, all of the um, titles I've picked out are actually to do, to do the theme of families, but they are just absolutely, I mean, genius, genius pieces of design. And, yeah, he, ma he manages to use the simple form of typography to create some of the most stunning designs that have very simple meanings, but you get them instantly. So, the first one is uh, for mother and child. And the one who's done this, so he has the word mother in quite a, it's a serif font, quite a large gothic style font. 
Um, but the ampersand is encased within the O, and then the, ch the word child is within the ampersand. Uh, it's quite a genius piece, essentially showing, you know, uh, the image of a baby within a womb of a mother. Quite literally managing to convey all of that with just a simple word. It is brilliant. Um, the colour of this font incidentally is blue. I think the original font is um, black, quite a simple font, but that conveys the meaning perfectly um, with only one small graphical element, really. And it is absolutely amazing. One of the... Um, it's a, you know, a simple, clean piece of design. Done. Um, and I think, yeah, it's very minimalist, but it gets, it gets the point across. And I think that's what a lot of modern design tries to do, doesn't quite get. Because, yeah, sometimes simple is just better. And that is just... Anyway, I'll stop ranting about that one. I'll move on to the second one, uh, which is families. Um, and it, it might specifically be families of New York. But the way he's done for this one is the I, L, and um, the other I on the other, uh, on the other side are all different shapes. You know, so you have, you know, the mother, father, and uh, child. And again, beautiful, simple, easy. Can raise the message instantly, you know, the fam it, it's families in one word. Um, really, again, uh, quite a common theme for all, all of the designs are that they're all really simple, so describing them takes about 30 seconds, but I think that's the beauty, that's the joy of his designs, they're that simple. And this might be a bit of a tangent onto mini minimalism, but specifically now, we're looking at minimalism in app design um, because it's moved away from, you know, typographic logos and magazines. They still do exist. And I think if they had this level of um, talent, then they would all be amazing. But um, minimalism in logos and app design tends to be just slimming down. Like it's, it's not done with the same grace as this is, um, even though I do think it's necessary. But this is just simply brilliant and one of the best pieces of design in in, you know, in general, I think, in history, done, really. Um, and the last one is Marriage. Um, I think he did this for one of his, you know, um, magazine titles. Again, very simple. The two R's are facing each other, showing a married couple. Brilliant, simple, done. Honestly, it conveys exactly what it is with one simple graphical element. And that's all you really need. So, yeah, um... As we have time, I'll pick more than three to look at. We also have the a slightly different one. It's the um, Look Paris logo, and again, the simple M in this one is the two O's are you know have a line form to form some binoculars. Beautiful. Again, it's really simple, like easy designs. Um, but this one, the um, the look is visually quite bigger. And the word Paris is underneath the um, the binocular O's, you know, creating that you actually are looking at it in the distance. So again, really simple designs, but they they get the meaning across. There's no 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 faffing around or trying to do something silly. And I think modern minimalism needs to needs to actually show this. If you could have the same style, in you know, obviously not exactly the same style because um, app logos are very rarely typographic. There most of the time there. Um, sometimes there are, but most of the time they're like a hybrid between a slight bit of typography and mostly shapes. Um, if they had this sort of grace, they'd all be brilliant, and there'd be no pushback against them really, um, because I do think that minimalism in modern design is necessary. If you're going to go the way of apps, if you're going to go 
the way of having a simple, clean logo. Um, because a detailed logo is nice and does, you know, obviously shows off more things in it, but it's not really necessary when a simple logo does the trick. It's easier, arguably easy design and easier to reproduce and print. So that's honestly one thing that modern designers, I think, could take away from him, is the simplicity of that design. Um, and as well, all of these designs are simple. They work in practically any font. The font I have them in, the font colour I have them in. Uh, well, not practically any font, sorry, I meant to say font colour. Um, the font colour I have them in right now is blue, but I think the originals were all in black and white font. Um, which is honestly makes them more simple. But they could work in practically nearly any colour, maybe for their intended purposes, not. But um, I'm sure you find ways to fit them in. But yeah, um, this will be a short tangent into design minimalism. But, but essentially, design minimalism needs to learn from this and learns to create. Needs to create unique, vivid, sharp, and easy to distinguish logos without exerting itself too much and going for something that's too lavish or too simple and losing a lot of people because it, it looks like everything else. It's just a bunch of colours. Um, and I feel that's the real struggle with designers now, trying to get that quite on point. But um, Hubbley Berlin absolutely did, so it is absolute hats off to him. So now on to our guest interview section, and I thought, uh, why not move away from the traditional style of the 60s we've been talking about and focus on how we do things now in the modern world um, with all the digitization technology available. So for this week's episode, I brought on Ben Marsh, a designer, illustrator and animator over at Bristol's Fiasco Design Studios, who have just recently launched their new animation studio, which he'll tell you all about. Um, he has previously done work with UX and app design, UX being user interface, which he will talk about quite a lot as well. And I, I personally found this interview very interesting. It goes um, on about a lot of quite modern and te uh, technological things and design we've seen. So it's a step away from, as I said, from what we're talking about the 60s, but I hope you enjoy. So now on to the interview. Yeah. First question, what do you currently do in design? Uh, so I'm a motion designer and animator now. It's kind of a bit of a fairly recent transition. So I've come from web design and designing kind of apps for mobiles, so primarily digital. But on the side, I was always having fun with animation and, uh, and, and illustration and stuff like that. So we've just launched a studio called Yatta in Bristol. So Yatta Studio, where I'm yeah. doing a lot of 2D and 3D character animation, uh, motion for brands, so deciding how how a brand moves, how a logo should move, how, how other brand elements kind of animate it. Uh, and kind of animated elements within digital experiences. So whether that's mobile phone apps or stuff for web. So I guess that includes kind of a, a lot really, but everything from script writing for larger animations to, to storyboarding, to, to illustration, then, then onto animation and working with sound designers or voiceover artists to get, to get the narration down and, yeah, it's it's really varied, but it's really enjoyable. It's really good fun. 
Yeah, I, I never thought of animation having screen right, um, script writers, but it does make sense. I guess what's quite nice is, is especially in Yatta, there's a few of us who enjoy creative writing. Like I remember in school, it was either I was either wanting to do art or do kind of creative writing in English. Those were the two things I enjoyed. So now that they've kind of come together in a career, it's 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 amazing how how these things work out. But the script writing is always funny because the client comes to you with sometimes just a rough idea of what they want. So you you build this script and you, there's a lot of back and forth because you might not fully understand, say say you're working with um, a tech company, you might not fully understand the product yet. So you can't try, try to mold this script together with, with the client. And other times they come to you with this perfect, perfect kind of two-page script. This doesn't take much editing at all. So uh, yeah, it, it differs, but it's really good. I really enjoy the script right part. Yeah, I know that does sound like quite fun, actually. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's something that's quite modern as well, because um, it's very, animation is um, only really been available for the past, admittedly, 30-ish years now. So, but I mean, it's got it's gotten progressively better. Yeah, I think, um, I think if you look at kind of the brand guidelines, for a modern brand compared to perhaps 30 years ago, you, you're very likely to have a kind of how that brand moves, what what it looks like. In, in, in a, I, I guess there's a lot of screens become available and all these brands are moving into digital spaces first, primarily rather than print. Um, you have animation at your disposal. It's another tool yeah. to, to use to differentiate your brand compared to another like, a really nice example is the Premier League. I don't know if you watch football at all, but yeah, um, they got really um, they had a really vibrant rebrand by a company called I think it was Design Studio, a, a fair few a couple of years ago, and there was a motion studio called Dixon Baxi who created the kind of the motion principles and how that new brand kind of moves. And what was interesting is they they created a lot of rules that referred to football, so there was stuff like. Uh, kind of the way that the ball moves around the pitch and yeah. the way the players move and little intricate kind of plays they took that and placed it into the motion design so it's just really nice but it, it it just stands out head and shoulders above a lot of other sports broadcasting on TV yeah they've done a really nice job and again if, uh, I'm sure if you look at the Premier League guidelines I'm sure motion design is pretty high up in and what they consider makes their brand their brand. I mean, yeah, because it's a, it's a sport. That doesn't make yeah. sense. It's quite... So the, the second question um, was, how did you get started in the industry? Yeah, so I went to Loughborough University and studied visual communication, which is graphic design. Uh, kind of figured I wanted to do something in the digital space. I liked having control Z command Z to undo my mistakes so I went to New Blood Design Festival which is kind of a, a festival to kind of promote new young designers and try and get a job and luckily got a job at a big studio called LBI so I think they're called Digitas LBI now perhaps but they were a, for a big web company who did big websites for honda.com and bt.com 
So I was there for a few years, learning how to build websites. And then I moved to a company called Us2, who were literally just down the road from around the corner. Uh, and they primarily did uh, product designs, so, so iPhone and Android apps. And they had a little games team as well, so they worked on like, Monument Valley. There was loads of opportunities there to have fun around the work that you were doing. There, there was lots of like little creative projects happening left, right, and center. And started to realize I, I wanted to do a lot more illustration and animation. From 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 us two moved over to sunny Bristol to a company called Fiasco Design, where it was a lot more. It was still web design. And, and digital products and stuff but it was a lot more branding and and kind of getting back to the core kind of principles of you know, graphic design typography and colors and illustration and then four years later it's is where i'm at now uh where having done a lot of motion design a lot of animation at fiasco decided it was time to kind of call that love and energy and passion into a, into a new project. So we started Yatta Studio, where, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm lead animator, which is exciting and scary and really good fun. Yeah, um, I've, I've seen the clip you sent of the, um, I think it's, it's like a trailer for the new studio. Uh, I, I thought it looked really good. It looks quite... Um, yeah. Yeah, it look, it's quite... It has a lot of... I can't remember exactly because I did watch it a couple of weeks ago. Um, but it had a very, I think it had a very different a variation of animation styles. Um, and it looked very clean and I, I, I quite liked it. We tried um, we tried to throw a, lot, a, a good mix of stuff in there. It's quite funny because we started a new studio. We don't necessarily have a whole bunch of case studies to, to put on a website. So a lot of that stuff's kind of stuff we did for fun or stuff, little experiments we've done. To kind of aim us towards winning the work that we want to win. Yeah, um, but just to um, explain a bit, there you said that you worked on one uh, the team that actually built Monument Valley. Yeah, yeah. So that was um, that was a company called Us Two. So Us Two is quite a big studio based in London. They've got a few offices worldwide, but they did a really cool thing where they they kind of jumped into designing for mobile before mobile was cool so so i think they yeah. i don't know if you remember like the old sony ericsson's used to have like themes on where maybe it's the halloween theme or the christmas theme and all the buttons would turn slightly like, yeah yeah they were pretty uh some of them were a little bit garish but they used to do that stuff and then kind of transition from that into the first iphone and so they i think they were quite lucky in that they got very good at designing for phones very early so they made i guess the company was doing quite well they were making a fair bit of cash and they decided to put the profit or put a fair bit of their profits into just making fun projects on the side yeah. which in turn will kind of generate interest uh, in the company but they, they, they started to make small games and then that over the years, built into slightly bigger games, and eventually they they had a full team working on what became Monument Valley. Yeah, they've they've actually they've, I mean that game obviously did so well that they actually split up in the end, so they, they became us two games as as a separate company, which is amazing to see because the the team that were working on it worked so hard, and it's it's great to see them kind of off on their own journey now. 
Interesting because Monument Valley is such like it's a well, it's not actually free, um, but it's a completely like it's almost like a game you'd find on a console or on the PC, but it's available on the phones. Yeah, which is uh so much better than most of the other free mobile games you see, which I don't even know if they're created by an actual studio. I, I guess mobile games are funny space because there's a lot of free games out there which are. Uh trying to get your money through updates and upgrades and there's a, quite a few games where you like 20 minutes and then you have to pay to unlock more time but yeah i guess they wanted to fight against that by creating this beautiful experience and, and charging a little bit for i think it was maybe four pounds or five pounds when it came out um, so um I, I was gonna ask how has your career been so far but you sort of already answered that um in that so I'll, I'll move on to the next question yeah. um can you tell me a bit about your experience with sort of user design and app design you talked about this a bit but um i guess it was two the teams were kind of built of three people so you have a, a ux designer a visual designer which is kind of a graphic design side and um and a developer so They've all got different roles in the project. The UX designer is there to make the app easy to use for the end user. So they'll be doing stuff like wireframing, figuring out the navigation, deciding how the content's divided up, helping build prototypes and doing user testing as well. User testing was something I never kind of realized how important it was until we started playing with it. Um, like the first company I mentioned this last time, LBI, have a, got a user testing lab. So they've got kind of a, a room, which is a bit men in blacky. It's kind of got like a, it's got a two-way mirror. It's almost like an investigation <laughs> lab. But you, you sit on the other side of this two-way mirror and you watch someone use your software. And there'll be yeah. someone in the room with them directing them. So they'll say, okay, well, maybe, maybe make this purchase or maybe try and get to this side of a website. And you watch someone kind of, Sometimes get there perfectly, other times just miss the button that you've designed or the navigation that you've designed. And, yeah. And it's what, what's amazing, I, I guess, about it is you can design this beautiful website or beautiful iPhone, but once you realize people don't know how to use it or struggle to use it, you, you realize that it's, it's completely pointless. And what you've yeah. done is completely uh, ob obsolete unless someone can use it and either buy what you want them to buy or find out what they want to find out. Um, yeah, it's yeah. really humbling. You realise that you're not such a great designer sometimes. I, I think that's um, a good thing. I was using the Amazon app, and it's quite a useful app, all things considered, but one of the things that annoys me, they've got this new buy now feature. Yeah, Amazon have just updated their app icon, haven't they? It looks amazing. I know apps um, can get a lot of hate, but I think, Whichever designer have worked on it, it's kind of they've changed the app icon so it's a little cardboard box with a smile and a tiny little bit of blue tape. That's quite good. I don't know if you see that. Um, I don't know nice. if I have. Yeah. But yeah, um, I guess this sort of naturally brings us to um, what changes in the styles and trends have you seen in design. Uh, so it's probably going to be like app design and UX design over the past, well, you know, 10, 15 years, maybe 10 years. Kind of um, skeuomorphism being a 
Skeomorphism being an awesome word, and it talks about design that reflects how something looks in real life, or digital design primarily that reflects how something looks in real life. So, so I guess when iPhones first came out, like the Notes app, the the background had a real paper texture yeah. to it. Yeah, YouTube app was a uh, old TV. Yeah, yeah, it looked like an old TV. Calculator app looked like a calculator. Like everything had um, texture to it or real life kind of shadows. Or So I guess on the screen, on the calculator, it looked like real buttons you could press. Yeah. I think the reason they did that, like we discussed last time, like the touch screens were fairly new. And, well, not touch screens were new, but the iPhone was obviously brand new. Yeah kind of transition people into this experience and getting used to how to use it um they kind of brought in these textures and shadows from real world experiences to uh yeah to, to, to make sure that there was a common kind of experience okay this is a button i press that this is yeah. a paper texture i can draw on this um and i guess as time's moved on uh, they've kind of stripped those out a fair bit so skeomorphism has kind of died a little bit yeah whereas all the um all the design's gone kind of flat and bright but see, I, it's funny there's um there's now a trend called neomorphism which <laughs> these are all like drivel trends i think shadows kind of coming back in, in in kind of nice minimal way a lot a lot more subtle than how they were before but but yeah i, I kind of miss geomorphism it was it was funny there were some beautiful app icons, like you say, the, the YouTube icon used to be this old retro TV. But the Instagram uh, one used to be like an old disposable camera. Oh, a Polaroid. Like Polaroid camera. Yeah, I think people used to make these beautiful icons. And, and now at the moment, everything's super flat. But I guess, I guess what we were talking about, the Amazon parcel, yeah, having the, the cardboard texture and a little bit of tape around the side, that's... Yeah, that's quite example of skeomorphism in a way. But, yeah, uh, um, I remember last time we were talking about so app logos and logos in general have gone more minimalist. Um, yeah. Like the Firefox logo we talked about which just slowly has gone into, you know, it used to be like a detailed fox and a world that looked slightly like a world. Yeah. And now it's just like purple blob with an orange blob. Okay. <laughs> It's reduced down a lot. Yeah. Um, the reduction might be because it's uh, it's an it, it's it's a software icon, right? So yeah, as the stuff has moved on to phone, and I, I think a big consideration in, in branding now is is how does it look when it's inside an app icon in that small kind of space, rather than how does it look when it's on the front of the book perhaps or the side of a building yeah um, um so that might that might be a big reason for things slowing down um so i think what we're seeing at the moment, what i've seen at the moment is a couple of brands have actually re released a couple of versions of an icon like yeah. how it looks when it's got loads of space to play it might have extra text underneath for example and then how it looks when it's really reduced down does it remove some of the colors or an outline or some like drop shadow effect I mean, just I, reduced to that core. I think that's just what brands should do really is have the same branding for everything so they have more detailed logo for print use. Mm. Um 
I'd like when it's bigger online and then uh, an app version of that. But um, yeah, also we're talking about the hate that all the new redesigned Google uh, logos got. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, they all look very similar to each other now, right? Yeah, but they look a bit ridiculous as well. <laughs> like, um, why the docs icon doesn't need to have the like four Google colors on it. Just looks a bit weird. So a lot of Google like design choices, they'll make incremental changes. Like maybe it's link color on, on Google search. Maybe one's like a darker blue, one's a lighter blue. Yeah. And they'll just see which are, uh, yeah, increase the statistics. So it's kind of data led design, which I guess is a fairly new, fairly new thing. Yeah. Um, that does sound, I mean, the thing with data led design is you could create something that's very effective, but could actually look quite ugly. No, um, that's where it's going. I don't know. If, if you're, a, if a reason for the design is to, is to sell things and, the ugly one sells things, and I guess it's doing a better job. I, mean, I right? don't, I don't know why an ugly item would sell more, <laughs> but it could be possible. Yeah, I don't know. It might be a color choice. It might be uh, not necessarily. It maybe ugly is the wrong word, but a color choice that stands out for being uh, unorthodox. Yeah, maybe there's a brown and a pink next to each other, for example, that that really make the product stand out. Yeah, it'd be funny yeah. when um when this transitions again, because this has been happening for the past 10 years, it'd be interesting to see what's what's next, or what happens next, where do they all go from here? Yeah. Whether it's kind of up and elaborate again, or, or more condensed again. That was actually my next question. It was, uh, what do you think design will look like in the future? My real thought is, in 2050, or maybe even later, will people be trying to replicate a 2010, 2020 design look. Yeah. For nostalgia reasons. I'd say definitely. Whether that's kind of the uh, the look of a, an iPhone or, I don't know, something like they do with like Windows 95 and stuff like that now. Yeah. It kind of, uh, kind of nostalgic nods to, to that, especially in animation when they're talking about kind of the early days of the internet. And suddenly you've got these old icons and old style cursors, for example. Um, in terms of where technology is going next, I, yeah, I think it's just purely driven by technology. I, I guess everyone suddenly having iPhones in their pockets has driven, I don't know if it has, but maybe it's driven like logos to get smaller and more condensed and yeah. nicely on an app icon. And kind of where does this go next, whether it's stuff to do with self-driving cars or just just a replacement of, of static design maybe, maybe it's movement everywhere which would be great for yatta if, if every brand is thinking about the way they move and transition um, and animate in um i think so i think that sort of concludes our interview really
Thank you so much to Ben Marsh for being able to come to the podcast and lend his time to talk about the various uh, facets of UX design and app design that we've seen recently, as well as uh, many other things. Um, so, and I do wish him luck with the new studio. Uh, so that's all we have time for today, but thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Jan Marlow on Ink, Pen and Pixels, and I hope that next week you can catch us on whichever uh, platform you find most suitable, whether that be Spotify, Apple Music or SoundCloud. But thank you for listening and goodbye.